And I went to a rural village called McKinney in Sierra Leone and participated. I was checking patients into this clinic. And what I saw and experienced broke my heart. I came back with a conviction that I have to do something. You know, the informal challenges were the most challenging. It really came down to being respectful of the culture and being in tune with culture and at the same time kind of challenging it and knowing how far you could challenge it and how far you could push. And that's a really gray line when you're coming in and working to create jobs. So we work with a third-party partner called Nest, and we're defining what a living wage is together. We're looking at them meeting their basic needs like safe housing and nutritious food. And then we're looking at access to education and healthcare. And the fifth thing and most important is saving 10% of their income. Welcome to Mindful Businesses presented by Sarani and I'm your host, Vedya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic and environmental practices. Today we have with us Alicia Wallace, COO of Kazi, all across Africa, woven together. She joins us from San Diego, California. Welcome, Alicia. Thank you so much for having me. Every country, every region, they have their own special traditional handicrafts and crafts. Like in the US, we have quilting, woodworking. In India, textiles is a big thing, handwoven textiles and embroidery. What role do these local crafts play in preserving communities? and the society that they operate in. Yeah, I love that analogy of just connecting craft and seeing how that's here in the U.S. Often women are teaching their younger children to weave in rural areas. This is like a pastime where women are getting together, they're sharing stories, they're enjoying each other's company. Mm -hmm. I often see it kind of like knitting, how in my community growing up, grandmothers and others would get together and knit and tell stories. And I see that in Africa when I'm visiting the women, they're getting together, they're passing this on to the younger generation, and they're conversing, they're supporting each other, they're learning from each other. And so really big part of culture because it's bringing those communities together and they have a reason to sit and to talk. Has any sociologist quantified this by any means? Its impact in dollars or even in uh, maybe in mental health or any such thing? Nothing quite like that, but we do see that in our impact studies when we're discussing the benefits. You know, the first region that we started working in was rural Rwanda in the Western region. And many of us have heard in 94, there was a genocide and many of those women were refugees or had to evacuate or were victims during the genocide. And so post-genocide, getting them to come together and to build that community and to have that support after losing their children or loved ones or their husbands they find that to be a positive impact of this business. They say, I find other women like me and together we're building a bright future. And so it's been really amazing to get to hear that impact. I don't think we've quite quantified it, but we are seeing it. So you're joining us from San Diego, California. Did you grow up there or? 
I did not. I actually grew up in Seattle, outside of Seattle in a small town. And my aunt lived in San Diego with her husband and he was in the military. And so it was always this sunny, bright, uh, dreamy place for me that I think fondly of from my childhood. But it really was when I was spending a lot of my time in Africa during the summer. So we'd be getting ready for holiday production. And as I've been building this company, I'd be in Rwanda and Uganda in July and August and September. And then I'd come back to rain nine months of the year. And so I really wanted to find a place where, you know, if I'm only gone for three months that I'm not missing such a wonderful season. Mm-hmm. San Diego is consistent. Anytime I travel, I come back and I don't have to rechange out my closet. It's the same clothes. So I can be on the go and come back to something steady. How did you land up there? Do you have roots or connections? No, you know, growing up, my mom was always watching National Geographic. And always talking about Africa and the animals and was just so fascinated with the culture and the people and the landscape. And I remember being like, that is so different. When I was in college, I was studying microfinance and understanding different economies and how they interacted globally. And I got invited on a trip to Sierra Leone, and it was with a team of doctors and nurses my senior year of college. And it was really a spring break volunteer trip. Mm-hmm. And I went to a rural village called McKinney in Sierra Leone and participated. I was checking patients into this clinic. And what I saw and experienced broke my heart. I came back with a conviction that I have to do something. I can't say that just a spring break is going to help these people. What happens the other 51 weeks of the year when the medical clinic isn't there? And those children that we served that had fallen in the fire and didn't have access to medical care, what's going to happen to them? And so I came back with the vision to do something on the continent of Africa, but that was going to help them 52 weeks of the year and really empower them to drive their own change in their own community. So when was this? Which year? That was 2009. And so I ended up starting with a nonprofit in 2010. It took me a little while to find a place that I believed that I could grow and use my voice and also that I believed in their development methodology. And so that was really the start of my real work was in 2010. So this was after the Civil War and all in Sierra Leone, right? Correct. When I went in 2009, I think it was, you know, a few years after the Civil War. That's a little far away for me now, but where they had had peace for a little bit, but the country was very broken still at that time. So what exactly does Kazi do? You make products? Yeah. You have products made by artisans? That's right. We started to identify local craft, and that looked like a lot of different things in the beginning. Baskets, textiles, jewelry, etc. And the goal was that we were exporting you know, you export and then you import U.S. dollars and those U.S. dollars get spent on something else. So you're increasing aggregate demand in these communities. And so that was really the idea. Over time, we really just started focusing on natural fibers. And so that for us means anything that's grown locally in the community that can be made in the home from beginning to end by one person. And this looks like lamp pendants and wall decor and gift decor. Mm -hmm. So there's amazing things that can be done. So you were one of the founders? Yes. How big is your team? Right now, there are around 104 employees globally. Here in the U.S., we have about 15 people. And then Rwanda has 53. Uganda has 27. Ghana has a team of 12. Tanzania has a team of 12. So we definitely have, there's a handful of employees remote globally as well, but we definitely have a growing team and 
those are our full-time employees that then partner and work with our everyday artisans that we employ. So it couldn't have been very easy to operate in environments and cultures which are very different from what you were used to, what you grew up with. What were the biggest challenges? There are formal challenges, like, say, institutions, but there are also informal institutions and cultures. Which was harder, the formal part or the informal part? Well, starting in Rwanda, it was really the informal part. The formal part of setting up a business and operating, the country was stable and has been stable at the time that we started. So I would say, you know, the informal challenges were the most challenging. It really came down to being respectful of the culture and being in tune with culture and at the same time kind of challenging it and knowing how far you could challenge it and how far you could push that was appropriate and what wasn't. And that's a really gray line when you're coming in and working to create jobs and impact people. And so people will tell you lots of things, sometimes what you want to hear and sometimes what you don't, and sometimes what's good for them and sometimes what's not. And so that judgment of who can you trust and what information are you listening to and how are you really making sure at the end of the day, what you're doing is really helping somebody and is actually sustainable. Mm -hmm. Those were the biggest challenging questions we were asking ourselves. How did you get people to accept you? That came with time, to be honest. And, you know, time can build trust. And so they had seen a lot of foreigners come in and promise lots of things. We're going to get you a market. We're going to change your life. We're going to help you. And so many of them had already had false promises. What we had to learn was that that was part of their culture, was that they didn't trust and believe anymore those promises. And so we had to counteract that and say, how are we going to make ourselves different? And how are we going to show up here every single day with something to do. And that's what we did. We built a model where every day of the week, we had a reason to be at our center. And there was a different activity going from order placement day to die day to quality inspection to buy day. We created different events happening at our center. So the women knew that we were present. We were serious. We were there. We were ready to help them answer their questions and that there was a routine business and that really came from driving out to a rural village one day and seeing a marketplace happen. Every Wednesday morning, the formal marketplace was happening. People, you know, harvested their vegetables and they showed up to market to sell them and trade them. Mm -hmm. That's where driving out, it was like, okay, if this is happening regularly, people know about this. You don't have to have a cell phone or be texting each other about an event. You just know this is just every seven days, there's a market at 9 a.m. And so that's the type of you know, observing local culture and then kind of bringing that in to our business where there was something routine and that they knew they could depend on. So how many countries do you operate about? There are four currently. We have operated Rwanda, Uganda, Ghana, and Tanzania. We have operated in Kenya and Burundi at different times. And your previous question when you were asking about institutional or informal challenges, which one in the beginning was the most challenging, the institutional became more challenging later on when we worked to expand into Burundi. And Burundi was similar to Rwanda and experiencing, you know, genocide and like an unstable history and conflict, but they've never completely left it. It hasn't fully returned to peace. 
And so while we were working in Burundi, the president, there was a lot of political issues and it actually turned into being very close to a civil war and many would call it a civil war. So we had to close our country of operation. We couldn't operate if we didn't have fuel and safe work conditions for employees, et cetera. So those became institutional. Mm -hmm. We have operated in five different countries at a time, but currently it's four. How often do you have to go there pre-COVID or maybe even during the COVID times? So I've been working in Africa for 12 years now, so since 2010. And the first few years I lived the majority of the time, 90% of the time I was in country, you know, hiring teams and in the village and meeting with the women and really problem solving and building this. Mm -hmm. Over time, you know, pre-COVID, that was four or five trips a year back and forth. We really had started to establish local leadership and built a supply chain and model where we didn't have to be present regularly. And we could be on this, the U.S. side, building the marketing and sales channels. More recently, just right before COVID in 2019, I had my son, Eli. And so I started traveling a lot less and then COVID happened. And so it had been three years since I had been back. And I just went three weeks ago and got to spend two weeks with our teams in Rwanda and Uganda. And it was incredible. It filled parts of me that I didn't even know were missing and drained from not being connected to people and places that I love so deeply during COVID. You know, so much was kind of stripped away in this new normal that was brought about. It was invigorating to get to go back. The craftsmen and women, is that what they did traditionally or did you have to train them? In our early days, we were finding traditional crafts, women and men, mostly women. It's really a woman's craft, just like knitting would be here. We'd rarely find a man to knit or embroidery. It's possible, but it's unlikely. Same in Rwanda. So traditionally, that's how we were finding, you know, it was passed down and very cultural. Now, because it's become a viable economic opportunity, it's anyone who needs the job. So we find men now weaving. We find women who were school teachers and during COVID didn't have an opportunity to be in school and earn an income. And so they came to learn how to weave something they can learn in a few weeks time, how to craft these amazing baskets. And so that was well worth their time in transition to be able to have alternative income and be working from the home. Mm -hmm. Now we mostly are recruiting men and women who need fair wage employment, and they're now passing on this tradition. So you provide training services to develop their skills? We provide training services to develop their skills, develop their leadership, cooperative, and even personal like management. How do you open a bank account? How do you save your money? How do you diversify your income and have wise investments? So as people grow with us, you know, we have an education program for the first year and a curriculum that is onboarding them all the way up into three years. And that's really taking them down a progression of here's the options, but here's really good ways that you're going to be able to expand yourself and, and grow within the income that you're earning. Mm -hmm. Having a first grade education, they don't know what earnings and spending are and doing the math and then knowing how to save 10% of their income once their basic needs are met. And so that we find that really important that they at least have the knowledge and then it's the, up to them, you know, what they choose. We don't mandate that, but giving them the knowledge is really important. So these artisans, are they your employees or they have cooperatives where they work and they supply to you? That's a really great question. The true technical way that they're set up is in a cooperative. And the reason for that is that we wanted agency. We want to develop leadership. 
We wanted the women to, you know, see that they're not just showing up to a factory and clocking in for a time card, but that they are problem solvers. They're learning how to build a business with us, which are transferable skills and to build a business within their community and to problem solve. So that was a really important part of our model early on. It also has created a very lean way to scale. Mm -hmm. So having a woman responsible to a group of 20 means that we're not, you know, always every single day in contact with those 20 women, but she's able to do that. And so it helps us grow and scale efficiently. But we see them as employees and that we're working for everyday wages. We work with natural fibers and in these countries, so you know, woven products, which is sometimes people think it's a very narrow lens. I think that it's There's huge opportunity, right, from the products we can create and what we can do. But we sell to very diverse markets from private label, high-end handbags. You'll never see our name on it. We're a supplier and we ship to Italy for somebody to finish the bags and sell them in very fashionable stores on down to major retailers and midsize retailers, small independent small stores here in San Diego. We're at the San Diego Zoo. So we have very diversified retail sales channels. And the reason for that is so if we get a really big order from a customer one day, we still have an order for them when we finish that really big order with something else and that we can keep that income flowing to them where we see them as employees, just like we want to show up to work and know that we're going to have an income. We see them you know, needing income from us regularly and that commitment to them is the same. So these craftsmen are basically artisans, right? That's correct. Our family went to Oaxaca, Mexico, and we noticed a new growing trend. Oaxaca is very well known for their pottery. What either the guilds or the cooperatives or the local governments have done is that they elevated some of the really talented artisans into artists. Like one of the ladies that I met in this I want to say artist guild called Los Mujeres de Barro Rojo. We went, she has this very traditional red pottery. And during a conversation, she realized we were from the United States. And she says, oh, I have my stuff at MoMA. You know, go to MoMA, you can see my things. So when can these artisans move towards being artists so that their value is increased? So is that something, some initiatives like that that Kazi could take? Yeah, that's interesting. Artisans are also artists. I think that's something that while we work with them on color and design to meet trends, they are making beautiful, exquisite things that are unique and artists. Where I believe Oaxaca is maybe a little bit more connected to, you know, the global marketplace and just formal like tourists and things traveling there. In a very rural village in Rwanda, that's not very common. Like I'd say 60% of our women still don't even have, you know, a touch phone Mm -hmm. and a first grade education and still don't have power in their home just from lack of access to electricity getting to their home. And so they, in those settings, like need that connection to market as well. And that's what we do. We advocate for them. We pay that fair wage. Their products are an SF MoMA. They don't know what SF MoMA means. I love that that artist that you met knows what that means and is proud of that. Our women, our artisans are so proud that they have value in the world, that they're not doing something for charity and that we're not just sponsoring their kids to go to school, that they know how to make something that's valuable and that's wanted and that they are needed 
there's a level of pride and dignity that comes with that. And they don't see themselves as manufacturing workers. They see themselves as artists. They're like, yeah, I made this beautiful piece of art and the world appreciates it. And then they're like, and what do all these American women do with it? They want to know, you know, what are we filling our homes with all these baskets for? Because being in a very rural setting, they don't understand a country of the size of 300 million people and what that can actually look like from a demand perspective. So there's great pride that we bring back in telling them stories and showcasing their product in different ways. We had a partner in December who was showcasing their product in Versailles, Chateau Maison, and they did this beautiful display. And it's this Nigerian designer and bringing in all of these beautiful African artists and our products were there forefront and center from these artisans in Versailles. And so they've definitely had their products elevated in really amazing places. And we're here to make sure that, again, it comes back to that everyday wage, that they're able to like sustain themselves from that. And our artisans used to have to go to market. So similar when you were there in Oaxaca, where they'd have to like Maybe they live in a rural setting and then they have to travel to that marketplace and sit there for the day. In Rwanda, that would be the same thing. Really rural area. If they want to find a market, one woman would be brave enough to risk buying a, a ticket and take all of her community goods and go and sit there for the day and pray and hope that a tourist, you know, she was lucky enough to find somebody to come by. The problem with that in Rwanda also is that there is no standard value of the product. So you or I could go by and be like, oh, you want that for $5? No, oh, I only have $1. You know, and then the woman goes, oh, okay, well, I really need my bus fare back home. Okay, fine, I'll give it to you for a dollar. But it probably was a dollar in material. And she doesn't really know how to value her product. And so in Rwanda, again, different cultural context and setting than what you traveled to. But for us, it's been really important to define that fair wage, define that value, and then bring that to the women in their rural setting every day so that they can focus on being artists and transform themselves. You touched upon a living wage. What is a typical living wage based on the standard of living in the countries that you operate? Yeah, that's exactly it. So we work with a third-party partner called Nest, and we're defining what a living wage is together. Each country is different. Even the regions that we work are different. You can imagine, you can't just say Rwanda is this for a living wage. Are they living in the city? Are they in Kigali, where things are more expensive from a housing and food perspective? Or are they living in a rural area? And how far of a rural area? What is the cost of food? So we have an internal index where we're understanding what the cost of living is, what the cost of food is, their access and ability to access these things. And then from there, being able to define what a fair wage is. And when we're defining that fair wage, we're looking at them meeting their basic needs like safe housing and nutritious food. Those are the first two, of course. And then we're looking at access to education and healthcare that they can educate all of their children and have access to safe healthcare, clean water. Mm -hmm. And the fifth thing and most important is saving 10% of their income, that they're able to you know, have a safety net, diversify their income and save 10%. And when they're able to do all five of those things, then we know that it's the right living wage. And so those are things that our team indexes and we call them time motion study, TMS, where we look at how long a product takes, how much material it takes, and base that on the daily wage that needs to be met in order for them to succeed. And so our products are always priced first based on you know what that time motion study tells us, never what the customer wants to pay. That's always important. And we have to bridge that gap on whether we can actually produce it and deliver, but we're always starting first with the artisan wage. 
So how did you manage to get all these upscale customers? Were you in the retail space? I was not. No, you know, our first customer was actually Costco. We were like any other, you know, artisan business at first showing up to craft fairs and music festivals with a small stand and showing beautiful products to people who are engaged and interested. And by luck and chance, my business partner, Greg, met a Costco buyer who said, hey, we've got these things called Costco roadshows. So pre-COVID and pandemic, Costco used to have, you know, fun, interesting pop-ups that would show up in their stores and you could find a surfboard one day or music speakers the next day. And we were one of those offerings. And what was really incredible about that was we were able to build over time. So we could start with one Costco location for 10 days. The next month we could go to two. The next month we could go to three. And so we were in control of how many we wanted to schedule. Mm -hmm. And that was what really helped us crack the code in the artisan space of the supply and demand matching. You know, so much is so difficult because you're working with people who are in poverty, who are escaping, you know, prostitution and, you know, genocide and just daily grinding poverty and committing to them that you're going to have a wage and going, you know, bringing this beautiful product, coming back to the U.S., trying to find a buyer. Sometimes there's a really long lead time and gap in between. And if there's too long, they return to what they knew before and they've lost trust and they've lost faith. And so we were able to scale and build that together with that partnership with Costco. And from there, you know, a name like Costco in the U.S. builds a reputation. We can deliver on quality. Costco trusts us with their member. We, we're doing what we say we're doing. They have a very deep vetting process for their vendors. And that's where going to trade shows and introducing ourselves, we were able to very quickly start to build new relationships and grow outside of just the roadshow channel. And thank goodness that we did during COVID. All of those roadshows were closed. And, you know, it would have been one of those black swan events where if you have one huge customer like that and you haven't diversified yet, that can take you out overnight sort of thing when they close something like that with the pandemic. So we have wonderful partners and retailers who sell in all different types of channels now, which is really incredible. Your hand-woven baskets sound fascinating. Describe to our listeners who cannot see it, I can see it on the website, what it feels like, what it smells. I, I feel these natural fibers have a very soothing aroma. That's right. Yes. I'm actually looking at a beautiful wall here hung in my office. And so the really amazing thing about these fibers is that they can be brilliant, bright colors. The, the collection that I'm looking at on my wall is called Serotonia. And it's inspired by the current trend right now where we're all at home. And, you know, some of us are longing for a vacation. We're longing for the warm sun on our shoulders and the escape of our everyday reality as we've been stuck at home with COVID for so long. So serotonin is that tropical feeling, that warm breeze, that sunny place. And there's these bright oranges and apricots and Kelly green colors. And you can see palm fronds and sunshine rays. And it's just this beautiful, brilliant collection. And that speaks to some people. But the amazing thing about our product is on another wall that I'm looking at, there's this very like subtle and earthy and neutral and like apricots and warm banana fibers. And it's very neat and orderly and it brings order to the house, but it's this stunning piece that just pops off the wall. And I often describe it as being this sophisticated bringing the outdoors in, where like you're in touch with nature and the earth in a way that's very beautiful and calming and, you know, just brings its warmth to your room. And these are mostly decorative products or are the accessories like 
baskets to store your showcase of fruits or are they like wall pieces? Yeah, you know, we do both. Our main offering is in wall pieces. So Kazi wall statements, as we call them, where we sell them as collections and sets together on the wall. There's also tabletop items, storage items as well. So definitely like you're describing a fruit basket for the table. That was our very first product. We even call our bread and butter product was a fruit basket for the table. And one of our highest sell-through products, the most useful are coasters. And the reason for that is, sure, most of us can imagine having a coaster. There's marble or whatever, glass, lots of different materials. But a coaster really needs to absorb the moisture. You know, if there's something cold, it needs to pull it off the glass and make sure it's not hitting your table. But I have some stone ones at home and I see that moisture roll down the cup and onto the table. But our coasters actually absorb it and it doesn't damage them. They're natural fibers. That's what they're intended to do. And so they do their job and it's so incredible. And so that's actually one of our top products is Mm -hmm. the beautiful wall statements, of course, but then coasters as just an everyday functional, you know, the right material and the right product. What are the different types of fibers that you use? So there's four main fibers that we use. The first is sisal and it's a silky white thread. It comes from a Maybe some of us know what a tequila plant or agave plant looks like, um, and it's in that same family. Plant fibers are actually stripped out of the center, and then a sewing needle is used to thread the needle and stitch a basket. Sisal is mainly found in Rwanda, grown in like the dry, arid regions. It takes color really well. It's a brilliant white. Mm-hmm. The next most common fiber that we use is called raffia. It grows from a raffia palm plant and tree throughout East Africa in like the lower marshy lands. Very sustainable, very quick growing, very renewable. The colors in that are more of like a creamy, soft white. It's like a bigger ribbon kind of thread. So you're not, you're threading a needle, but there's a lot more coverage and you can see that in the pattern. Mm -hmm. Our third most common is an elephant grass, a straw. And that makes a really different type of product, big flexible products like laundry hampers or light pendants or things like that. So it's a different type of fiber for a different weave. And then our fourth fiber is banana leaf. And that brings in this really cool organic texture and pattern. And no two pieces ever could even closely look the same because you're getting in the banana bark and the pattern. And again, this is coming off the banana bark of the tree. And so very fast growing, regenerative, good for the environment, actually, that we're using that material. The banana tree in general, after it's fruited, doesn't it die? Not if you're just harvesting the bark. So we are just harvesting the bark on the tree. In Uganda, there's something that they eat as a staple every single day. It's called murtoki. And in India, yes, (laughs) you know, that green banana plant. So those trees go all throughout Uganda. And we have harvesters who go and they're harvesting the bark off of the plant. And so they're to grow food every day. But then kind of almost as a byproduct, we're able to use the bark of the fiber. So yeah, it doesn't damage the actual tree itself and it takes some time to grow back. So we make our rounds and cycle through, but it is fast growing enough that every six months we can go back and harvest from that same tree. So you were the recipient of the Nest Seal Award for handicraft businesses. So what is that? Who runs it first? Nest is a nonprofit organization out of New York. They actually, in their early days, were an artisan business such as ourselves. So working directly with groups, producing products and selling to retailers. They saw a really big gap in the market for artisan advocacy 
and also for transparency and developing a fair wage model that was taking care of home workers. So they went out and they developed a coalition of major retailers. They worked with the UN and fair wage studies, and they developed a methodology to ensure fair wages are paid. They started with major retailers like Target and West Elm, and they partnered with them to vet their supply chain because many of us don't really know that if you walk into a Target or even a Walmart or any other major retailer and you see like earrings that are hand beaded or you see picture frames that have small bone tiles that are made into picture frames, those are all done by home workers. Those are all handmade, handcrafted in the home even in this major retail setting. But those workers are pretty invisible to what is the fair wage standard and how do retailers ethically work with those people in their supply chain. And so Nest started at a really macro level, understanding the challenges that retailers have, partnering with them and certifying their own workers within their supply chain. And over time, created a model for independent businesses such as ourselves that weren't necessarily embedded as part of Target's supply chain, but for us to acquire the seal as well. So we were the fifth company to receive the seal and we were the first independent company to receive the seal that wasn't embedded in an organization. And that was a place of pride for us because many of us know maybe the names of like the World Fair Trade Federation or, you know, Fair Trade or those things. Those don't actually certify our supply chain from artists and homeworkers in a way that says our children involved in the supply chain What's happening to the dye and the materials? How are we disposing of them? How are we defining a fair wage? Those are set up for manufacturing in a facility or setting or for farm workers. And so they're really missing that gap. And that's where Nest came in and really filled that gap, created a very in-depth seal. I mean, they make us a better partner. It's very challenging year after year. This is our third year receiving the seal. We just received it for Ghana for the first time. The standards get more and more difficult every year. So do you have to apply or do you get nominated and you get awarded? No, you were a partner of theirs. So we pay for the Nest Seal. We pay for an audit, basically, and they have a standard and a guideline. And then they come in country and every wage record, every artisan, every payment transaction, every product we've ever purchased, we have to hand over our accounts and also open up the accounts of all of our artisans on their side and go out and audit an interview and make sure that those things match and the fair wages are really reaching those women. So now it's a service that they provide to other artisan groups as well, ensuring ethical transparency. How are they different from, say, B Corp? B Corp is looking at the business as a whole, and we've had our B Corp certification as well. So that's looking at, you know, what is your executive paid to what is your lowest worker paid and what are your workers' rights and, you know, how much energy are you using in your office and those types of things. So B Corp is measuring what's your mission, how are you conducting business, and are you really good for the world and giving you a standard that way. Mm-hmm. Nest is going out and saying, specific to a home worker, how are you improving their life? And are you really? So sometimes artisans are making a wage, but it's not enough of a wage to meet those five requirements. You know, not everybody's as defined as we are saying there's five things, you know, they could just go out and say, we're going to buy your product and here's the price. So they're defining those things and in partnership with us, but they're also making sure that like the dye that we use that we're not just like disposing of that, you know, over our shoulder and being like, oh, we're going to throw that down. You know, our dyes, 
We're making sure that they're organic, that we have wastewater management and that we're treating them before so that it's not all of a sudden, oh, at the cost of having a job, now we're polluting waterways. And that's just, it's still better for people, but maybe not thinking of the planet. And so it's really this inclusive way to have in-depth confidence that what we're doing is really good for people and the planet. So Kazi employs about 6,000 artisans right now. That's correct. 6,000 and growing. What is the future? What about carrying on this tradition? How do you train maybe the next generation? That's a great question. Those are things that we're asking ourselves internally. And by moving into new regions with new products, we're finding the need for jobs in all areas of Africa, sub-Saharan Africa. Mm -hmm. We pay a fair wage and train and equip people in a way that creates an alternative to, you know, traditional farming, which they can still do, but at a wage that can completely transform their life. Imagine someone coming to you and saying, I'm going to increase your income eight to 15 X. I mean, you're going to look at them and be like, are you for real? Like, when can I start? Right. And so that's the type of response that we're getting and being able to like have the reputation that we have and show up every day like we've learned and have our local team out there. We actually have a wait list. We have a wait list of people who want to join because they've seen this transformative change happen to their neighbors and in their community. I saw that when I was just out three weeks ago. I went to drive on this rural road and meet with this group and see a woman, Specios, who I'm, I've become friends with over the years. And as we're hugging and greeting each other and seeing you know, what this transformative business has done for her group, I'm also back in the car and driving away and I see a woman walking towards me with a huge bundle of sticks. And she's standing and kind of shadowing this eight-year-old girl behind her, also with a huge bundle of sticks on her head. And as I'm walking away from this group feeling, you know, pride in my work and what I've done and developing this relationship with Specios and hearing all their achievements, I'm also brokenhearted for this woman and this eight-year-old kid who haven't had the opportunity to have that wage and that we haven't reached her quite yet. And so while there's moments to celebrate and seasons to celebrate, there's also seasons to know that like there's still so much more work to be done. And we believe that our model is something that can reach new regions, train quickly and transform communities. And so, yeah, we continue to find really amazing partners who are in that with us and have big plans. We're at 6,000 right now and we see ourselves in the next five years at 50,000 and we know how to get there and we can't wait to do that so we can see that woman and her daughter, her daughter walking behind her in a school uniform, not with a bundle of sticks on her head themselves. Those are such inspiring words. What are your next steps? That's a great question. What are the next steps? My next steps are to continue to forge new paths and partnerships to build value for retailers to create an offering that when we show up to someplace here in the U.S. and we need something, that we have an alternative that gives us confidence that we are doing something good for the world. Imagine when we go to the pharmacy and we need a greeting card that we can choose something that's taking care of a person. We can go to a store and we need an ornament or a gift and we can have an alternative and a choice to know that a fair wage was paid and someone was taken care of. And so for us, we want to continue to be there to make those partnerships, make that product visible and happen and be bringing people beautiful things for their home, transforming homes 
is really another line that we talk about so often because our products really transform our spaces. As I talked about that warmth coming in and the design and the beauty and the artisan craft, but it's also transforming the home that it was born in, that it was created in, and that you know brought it to life because of that income is flowing back to that artisan and consistently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our next steps are to continue to grow, transforming more homes globally and connecting more people to ways to better the lives of men and women everywhere. Wishing you all the best, Alicia. Thank you so much for all the work that you do and coming on Mindful Businesses. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to Mindful Businesses, hosted and produced by Vidya Ayer. We'd love to hear from you. Send a voice note with your questions or comments to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. We recorded this podcast in Lafayette, Indiana. Theme music composed by Tatum Gale. Our marketing assistant is Caitlin Milligan. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pashrija. This is Vidya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.